In 1812, the British invaded America, thereby proving once and for all the eternal relevance of the Second Amendment. But we kicked their fucking redcoat asses. 152 years passed and America's non-Hawaiian shores remained as pristine and undisturbed by outsiders as a Victorian-era hymen. Then came the Beatles. A vicious assault of indelible melody, made all the more heinous by their audacity to get better at playing intrinsically American music than Americans were. It was like the War of 1812 all over again. Except this time, they got the better of us. All of America's women wanted to leave us for them. America looked at Great Britain and said to itself, Is she really going out with him? Oh, perfect. Wow. I didn't even time that. From the coincidences of the last episode to this, this is Man. too spooky. Man. And as you can hear, that mood was later captured by the great new wave pop songwriter Joe Jackson, whose career later went through phases of reviving American swing and jump blues music and sophisticated New York-inspired pop, and oh shit, he was British too! Fuck, they did it again! Something had to be done. Jealous of their musical facility, Americans began to exclude anything that felt too damn British. It was time to make America great again by keeping out foreigners, even the white foreigners. Tons of brilliant UK artists were never quite able to crack the extremely lucrative American market. Even if we speak the same language, sometimes the cultural divide is a great yawning chasm. Even if Joe Jackson can write an amazing chorus hook and a fantastic bridge and perfectly capture the romantic angst of a whip-smart 20-something dude with terrible social skills, his song might stall just outside the top 20 on the American pop charts. And it isn't even that British. The song, so I, was, the song hit the hook as soon as Steve said hook. This is incredible. It's, it's, it's unconscious. It's, it's almost psychic. Wow. Here comes that bridge. It's fucking fantastic. Did you hear that? It hit the bridge right when he said, here comes the bridge. <laughs> wow! Jeez. <laughs> this is spooky as all fuck. Dude. This should be the Halloween episode. Anyway, I think it's time for a new immigration policy. Let's rediscover all this great music that the Brits, in all their obnoxiously but clearly superior taste, have known and revered for many years. But we can't just call it all Britpop. That's a very specific genre from a very specific time in the 90s. Now, we could go for a pun about how all these songs completely avoided being hits in America. And Hunter came up with one. Yes. What was it, Hunter? It should have been called The British Invasion. Yeah. It's a good pun. I'm not saying that it doesn't deserve to be the name of a genre, but I wanted to tell all the people exactly what these songs are. Bite-sized little treats containing some of the most exquisite ear candy that these sugar-loving imperialists have ever graced the earth with. And so in keeping with what British people call pretty much every sweet treat, regardless of what it actually is, ladies and gentlemen, I give you some puddings! Would you... Beyond your rock. The song ended. So would you say these are pudding pops? Pudding no, pop? because that evokes Bill Cosby. Pud pudding pop music? No. Hey, this is a Beyond Yacht Rock pudding pod pop songs. This is, a, this is a Beyond Yacht Rock podcast. I like we, British Evasion. We make new 
genres every week and we count down the top 10 songs in that genre. And we argue about them. My name is J.D. Riznar. My, my name is Hollywood Steve. Dave. Hunter. Hey, because you guys like Yacht Rock so much, we like to throw a bone to the Yacht Rock genre every week. Uh, and this week's no different. Here we got... Uh, yeah, last week was a weird one. So, uh, Too Damn British? Well, this one is what I like to call Trop Mot de Francais. If you ah, think oui, oui. If uh, this is um, Grimaldi's here with Sinbad. Okay, so if you think Brits have it bad, Brits gave us everyone from the Beatles to the great and timeless Harry Styles and everyone in between. But think of the poor French. They can't catch a break in America, especially when they're singing in their own damn language. Even if they bring in America's best yacht rockers, ils ne pouvons pas naviguer le bateau traversé l'Atlantique. Can't get their boat across the Atlantic. Listen. Can't navigate it either. Yeah, okay. I, I followed that. I can see it on the page and kind of figure out what my high school French was trying to teach me. Okay, so this is, I've said their name before, so but wait for it again. Grimaldi Zier. Z E I H E R. I don't know. With Sinbad off their 1978 album Grimaldi Zier. Yes, Bernard Grimaldi. And Bernard Zahir decided not to call themselves Les Bernard because I guess they hate the idea of people Bernard remembering du. their band. Du Bernard. Du Bernard. Les Du Bernard. So they went with their weird last names instead. Their sound's mostly acoustically driven. It's a rarely solid yacht. So what I'm trying to say is that Grimaldi Zahir is no Nielsen Pearson, Larson Featon, Sanford Townsend, or Burn and Barnes. Bernard avec Bernard. <laughs> um, très Bernard moins un. <laughs> Bernard et Bernard aussi. Uh, but this is so. This song, I think, this song barely makes it on the boat, in no small part to thanks to the uh, personality dragon from the marina. Um. So, let the, let the French words of this song melt away when you listen to it. And focus on how dang smooth it is. Listen to that. You got a really nice traditional piano. You got perfectly... It's a perfectly acceptable replacement for e-piano. De temps en temps. Uh, there's a wandering yet disciplined bass groove by Abe Laboreal. Some hot Michael Landau and Lee Rittenauer licks in the same song. It's a really great yacht guitar solo in here. And Victor Feldman's hand drums tie it all together. So this is basically some lower-level Steely Dan shit on par with Terrence Boona Boylan. So, beau travail, Grimaldi et Zahir. Coco, sous serait du ciel suave. Los dos Bernard. <laughs> Stay Bernard, my friends. <laughs> Hey, you guys ready to talk about some uh, song puddings? No. Fantastic. We're ready to listen about song puddings. In 1982, smack in the middle of the New Wave era, the British ska revival band Madness decided to basically ditch the ska part of their sound and explore some of their other, more quintessentially British influences, who we'll kind of get to later in the show. They recorded a sort of concept album called Madness Present the Rise and Fall, 
which featured a lot of wryly humorous slice-of-life songs about working-class life in Britain. Of course, we all know the biggest hit from that album, Our House, was the song that made, him, made them one-hit wonders here in America, even though they had something like 15 top 10 hits back home. Wasn't Welcome to the House of Fun a hit for them? In Britain, yes. Not here? Not here. I have been grossly misinformed about madness. Yep. Uh, and this song, this would be a perfect example of what we're looking for in this genre, except it was a hit in America, too. Hey, you know what else was a hit in America? <clears throat> Excuse me. Born in the USA. Yeah, that was huge. But also, I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. Yep, they were so, British. So they is were that, British. Is that song puddings? No, because it was a hit in America. Oh. I'm looking for the overlooked stuff. Songs that could and should have been huge hits all over, but maybe their context was just too damn British. So what you're saying is, Right Said Fred is too sexy for this genre. Too sexy for this genre. Oh, Absolutely. They're, they're pretty much too sexy for any genre. Now, maybe maybe it was the artist's image. Maybe the cultural frame of reference was too specific. Maybe it was the thickness of the accents or the slang expressions in the lyrics. Whatever the ultimate reason, it's great stuff that isn't that widely known in America. And the main reason I'm well chuffed about doing this episode is that this is a really good gateway drug into hardcore music nerdery. Like, you think you've got a handle on the classics, then you hear these songs and you're made aware of this whole alternate universe filled with amazing music you've never heard. And you're like, what else have I missed? And you go and actively seek it out yourself because that's really the only way to hear it. Like, the time that I heard I'm Too Sexy, and I was like, what else have these guys done? And it turned out the answer was shave their heads and built up their muscles. So I'm into that now. Are you going to shave your head? Might be time. You notice I've been slowly taking hairs out of the top of my head for years now. <laughs> Putting them on your crotch. Yeah. <laughs> you look like you got the Jackson 5 in a scissor lock. <laughs> uh, there are several things that Britain does better than America. Pre-nose job, Michael. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, for sure. That's Ask little... any of my ex-girlfriends and my wife. Nice. Pre-nose job, Michael. Yeah, I, I heard they just called it the bald spot. <laughs> There are several things that Britain does better than America. Baking competition shows, traditional beer recipes, the widespread availability of Indian food, and the one that's relevant here, melody. There are a lot of very, very British musical genres that I'm not concerned with today, like I'm not picking any 10-minute prog folk pieces, for example. I'm focusing on punchy, tightly constructed pop songs with hooks that will stick in your head for weeks. I'm sorry, but in the Department of Melodic Facility, British pop just kicks our asses on down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. And that's why a Swedish guy named Max Martin writes pretty much all of America's hit pop songs now. Which means he probably wrote I'm Too Sexy. Are you saying that the geniuses of Right Said Fred can't come up with their own material? They did write I'm Too Sexy. They did. I double-checked. They did write I'm Too Sexy. They were too sexy to accept outside songwriting contributions. Dave, that, anyway, I think oh, sorry. I'm Too Sexy could be fit in your genre that you're working on right now. You might be very well right. All right, sorry. Okay. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that genre. We'll hear what it is at the end of the show. Maybe. So anyway, some of the artists we'll hear today have decently high name recognition in the U.S. Some don't. Some had one or two hits here, some did not. What they all have in common is that compared to their stature in the U.K., they're essentially cult artists here. Or at least the, some of the periods we'll be looking at of their careers are cult periods. Some of those cults are bigger than others, of course. 
And while most of these most of these songs are pretty big hits in the UK, none of them even came close to being hits in America. So Kate Bush's career is a great example of many song puddings. Yes. And not, maybe not her longer song suites, but a lot of her singles are would, would, would theoretically make very good song puddings. They, they were all very big hits in Britain, and they did not they barely made a mark. In, she didn't have a hit until Hounds of Love, so, and all of her singles before that were, were relatively good what, hits. What kind of pudding are we talking about? Here. See, this is my question as well. Do we have? Should we have watched the Great British Baking Show to understand your reference for puddings? Yeah, it's what British people call like eighty different kinds of desserts. Yeah, for example, like say bread pudding. You know? Yeah, That's, but, but we like, love that in, in the United States. Yeah, because yeah, we're big city strips. foodies. We're big city foodies, so like we're oh bread pudding, yeah. But like the bread pudding that they I make, when I, was in I feel like. And isn't there also a pudding that's big like pudding. that's like made of animal animal yeah, face blood parts? Pudding. Yeah, suet pudding. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's all. So that's what I'm asking. Like some of the puddings are kind of bread and flour based. Some of them are like what we think of as pudding. Some of them are just like custard. Some of them have jam. Some of them are like more like cakes almost. And there's something terrible called black pudding that's terrible. Yeah, that's made out of blood. Blood, blood, okay. blood pudding. Okay. So what I'm saying here is that puddings can be anything, so you may as well have puddings made out of songs. And just like you don't understand why it's song puddings, we don't understand these songs enough to request them to our local DJ, which is why they weren't hits here. Exactly. I'm just saying that some puddings we are big fans of yes. in the United right. States. Yes. Which is like the Beatles is like our jello puddings. So exactly. These, these are like song shitty puddings that Americans don't like. Yeah. No, yeah. these are specifically British pudding. Like, it's a suet pudding. Like, they yes. have it over there. Shitty puddings. That's what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, so the gross puddings. <laughs> so I'm calling this episode Volume One. Where I'm gonna this this will cover the late '60s through glam punk and new wave. A later volume at an indeterminate date will cover alternative rock and the Britpop movement of the '90s. Oh, I'm I'm too sexy for part twos. That's what you think. Maybe the second one will have a better name than puddings. Nope. <laughs> The queen of pudding's presence is required. How can you have any pudding if you don't cheat your meat? The queen of puddings. The Queen of Puddings. Queen of Puddings. Cherry Queen of Puddings. The Queen of Puddings. Jesus Christ. She's gonna make an entrance. The Queen of Puddings. The Queen of Puddings should be crowned with tall mountain tops of meringue. I love Queen of Puddings. Good. Ruth has spent weeks perfecting an unusually flavoured cake. I'm making a mint, ginger and blackberry cake. Mint, ginger and blackberry, they're all gonna fight each other, aren't they? Blackberry's quite pungent. The 55 second long bumper. It's well, a record. As that's, you, that, I'm as sure you know, that's just once. As you know, the queen of puddings has to make a rather grand entrance. <laughs> Shitty puddings. So, gross puddings. The British evasion. Would have been great. It's better this way. So we're going to start our journey in the 60s with the band that Richie Unterberger of the All Music Guide described as the best and most important British group of the late 60s that never made a significant dent in the American market. This is The Move doing their first number one hit, Blackberry Way. Uh, the Move is usually only mentioned in America as the group that became ELO. 
which is a shame because aside from clearly worshiping the Beatles, they actually don't sound that much alike. Can, uh, can, I, take a, yellow. can I take a sidebar to talk about something I hate? Sure, yeah. You can't turn on a radio on the weekend anywhere in this country and, and not, not hear yellow. No, not hear breakfast with the Beatles, brunch with the Beatles. Yeah. Every station has five of the. It's the Beatles had like three albums. How Only could there, three? How yes. could there be four hours of Beatles shows on every weekend on every single station in America? It's just a, just a little, a little, a little gnat I got. You know what? You know what? You, you go over to uh, <laughs> you go over to K Jazz. They do a Saturday morning uh, radio show that's all Sinatra. Oh, that's, okay. It's wonderful. Okay. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> so Blackberry Way. Thank you for the recommendation. Oh, yeah. You're welcome. But hey, the move. Those guys are pretty fucking cool. A, lot, a hell of a lot better than ELO. Yeah, they, yeah. They did a lot of really interesting stuff, and, and it's really not very well known over here. Um, this was this was their only number one hit in Britain. It was from uh, late '68. Uh, out of seven top ten hits, it was consciously designed to be kind of a psychedelic downer counterpart to the Beatles' "Penny Lane." Hey, you know how the Beatles got famous? They wrote all those street songs. We need a street song, and we'll be famous too. Who grew up on a cool street? I grew up on Atfield. Not good enough. Blackberry Way. That's where I grew up at. I grew up on 575 East. No good. Blackberry Way. I'm the boss of the band. I'm... Uh, my name is Jeff Lynn. <laughs> Roy Jeff. Wood. My name is Roy Wood. That's the name of the song. <laughs> what do you think about radio stations that want to get the lead out? <laughs> I mean, that's not a morning show. That's pretty much just all day. Lunch Zeppelin. Three for Thursdays? Is that a thing? <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. Five for Fridays? Did you do that? Yeah. Five for Fighting? Good band? No. Not really. Really? No. Okay. I'm just saying that. All right. About to go off the rails on this episode. <laughs> uh, a, a decent chunk of the move songs were clearly inspired by or quoting from other pieces of music, uh, like their debut single "Night of Fear," just flat out steals the melody from Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, and they even covered their own I song, sort of. Uh, they covered their own song "Cherry Blossom Clinic" by re-recording it with a much more elaborate, almost prog rock arrangement on their 1970 album Shazam which is generally regarded in rock critic circles as a classic and their best. Um, the Mover from Birmingham, they started out in 1966. As J.D. wanted to get to, uh, they're led by singer-songwriter guitarist Roy Wood. From Wizard? Yeah, I'll get to that, too. Ah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I just realized yeah. that. Yeah, it'll be, uh, it'll be in this uh, uh, bit here, yeah. this uh, short bit. Uh, Roy Wood is one of those archetypal English eccentrics who just happened to also be a pop music genius. Uh, Jeff Lynne did not join the move until 1970, around when Wood was moving from psychedelic pop to prog and hard rock. Uh, and their late hard rock phase was a major influence on Cheap Trick, by the way. Uh, the Electric Light Orchestra project was supposed to be a vehicle for Wood and Lynn's interest in more and more elaborate arrangements, and it soon eclipsed the move in Roy's mind. So they recorded, they recorded the last move album around the same time as the first ELO album. Uh, Roy only lasted about a year in ELO, at which point he left to release a solo album where he played like 20 different instruments himself, literally 20 different instruments. He also formed Wizard, which was a large kind of quasi-glam rock band. Uh, they were more they were known for Roy's proto kiss makeup and his wild multicolored hermit looking hair, outlandish costumes for all the other band members, destroying pianos during live gigs. 
And they even had custard pie fights on the popular BBC music show, that's, Top of the Pops. That's a pudding if yeah, I've they, seen that is, yeah, pudding it. Yeah, it all ties in. Uh, Steve, you're too sexy for editing down paragraphs or relevant information, I gotta say. You just blew your wad, and now you have less new information for a crazy British music wizard genre. But on the plus side, listeners who don't know anything about the move now have a basic idea of who the fuck Roy Wood is. Also, JD, please do a sweet wizard genre sometime. I remember, oh, yeah. I remember when you used to draw sweet wizards on the computer and you'd put them up on your refrigerator with the caption sweet wizard. Oh, yeah, I did that once. Yeah, yeah. I, feel like, I feel like this is your territory. Oh, yeah. Sweet yeah. wizard would be a great it genre. Yeah. It would be a good band name. Yeah. Both. Good band album song type That's, combo, that too. Is, that would be a combination of two glam rock bands. So, yeah. <laughs> Tell us all about your savory parcels. Um, I'm making uh, Indian savory parcels. Surprise, surprise. Uh, I'm making kachoris, which are um, pastry, and inside there's lentil mixture. You're going to deep fry them? Yes. What the fuck is going on? Chetna's kachoris will be made using a carom seed pastry, which will crisp up when deep fried. Day. Dave's on so little sleep he's so tired he has to sit through minute-long bumpers of the Great British Baking Show. It's, I mean, it's you, Bake Off in Britain, uh, you realize. Oh, okay. You lose <laughs> nothing by making it five seconds. But you don't get the ingredients tying into the songs, no do you? No one's cooking at home! <laughs> I am happy to hear T-Rex, though. Yes, here we go with T-Rex. We're going to jump forward a few years into the beating heart of the glam rock movement. Uh, this was the first song on T-Rex's second glam album, The Slider. Uh, everybody knows Bang a Gong, Get It On from Electric Warrior, which is their first glam album. That song and was their Power only... Station. Yes, and the Power Station cover. Uh, that song was T-Rex's only hit in America. In the UK, it though... It went to number nine, but uh, Power Station, I think, went all the way to number eight. Uh, yeah, I think, or number six, maybe, even. Yeah. I can't remember. Or maybe that was some like it has. I can't remember. Uh, anyway, uh, this was the fourth of T-Rex's four UK number one singles. Came in the middle of a string of ten straight top tens. Fun facts about this song. Backing vocals are by Flo and Eddie of the Turtles. And also Mark Boland described this as his attempt to make the smoothest song in history. Uh, he wanted smooth. He shouldn't have called it Metal Guru. He should have called it Micro Modal Guru. Uh, but I'm not plugging the dick cover company that, that pushes that material because I, I've been listening to our show. I haven't heard their ads on there for a long time. So you know who you are. You get your dick cover ads back on our show, company. My wife says that your underwear makes my penis look like a witch's nose. That's a great ad right there, and you're missing out. Yeah, you could have had that. Now, are you they just wrapping them around your dick? Because they cover more than just your dick. Yeah, but you wear them to cover your dick. Yeah, they do have a good dick pouch. Yes. Yeah. But we're not going to talk about them. Yeah. We're going to talk about Mark Boland for my a wife, minute. My wife said elephant nose. But, you know, <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe. No, I've got this uh, little fake elephant nose that I got at a zoo. It's real small and cute. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So Mark Boland was uh, doing glam rock before David Bowie picked up on it. Uh, T-Rex had started out as a hippie folk outfit called Tyrannosaurus Rex. Did a few albums under that name with lots of lyrics about fantasy and mythology. Uh, around 1970, Boland started playing more electric guitar, writing songs with a more pronounced 50s rock and roll style backbeat. That gave him his first hit single in Ride a White Swan. 
He also started wearing top hats, feather boas, glitter, and flamboyant outfits influenced by British theater legend Noel Coward. Uh, when Boland first appeared on Top of the Pops in March 1971, dressed like that, glam rock instantly went mainstream and turned into a movement. Culturally, it tended to function as a vehicle for lower-class aspirations of escaping their humble origins and living the decadent rock star life, or at least having some fun on the weekend prior to returning to their real home planet, of course. So let's get to the essential Britishness of glam rock. More than just working class bands riffing on upper class foppery, it's really the beginning of using sexual ambiguity and androgyny as modern marketing tactics. Over the years since Boland, variations on this sort of image have frequently resonated with British audiences. Is it because the country traditionally segregated its schools by gender? Packing boarding schools full of adolescent boys with no one to experiment on but each other? Maybe not, since schools are mostly co-ed now, but this stuff still seems to work today. But anyway, flirting with homoeroticism, subverting norms of masculinity, all that is more accepted as a standard mode of edgy rebellion in British pop culture. You contrast that with America, where glam metal had its moment in the 80s. It had a little of the same class aspirational subtext, but the sound got louder and more aggressive, and the image had to be accompanied by subtext that these guys were just doing this because they were like total pussy hounds, and this was getting them like so laid, bro, super laid, definitely by chicks, bro. I know you worked really hard laying out that theory on why this wasn't a hit in the, in America, but I think it just wasn't a hit because they say metal guru weird. Yeah, they say guru. Metal guru. I think yes. the big, same reason Gary Gnu never made it uh, <laughs> onto a real news show. <laughs> you, but I just think if, if, they, if they said metal, because this song is awesome. If they yeah, just said metal guru in a way that we can understand, um, uh, I think... They would, it would have been a big hit, and I would be complaining about Tea Time with T-Rex shows on every radio station. Um, and by the way, I think Tea Time means lunch. It's like 4 o'clock snack lunch. Is it 4? It's I four. thought it was just any lunch. No, I think it's 4 p.m. Oh, okay. All right. I think glam rock didn't hit hard in the U.S. because it used a lot of, like... 50s sounds, which was a, which was sort of a novelty, a 50s American rock and roll, which is a novelty in, in in England. But here, it was like it was it just old. Yeah. So when they hear this, it's like oh, these guys are doing an old sound, whereas there, it was like a performance. I mean, they had Cliff Richard, but not not too much else around in the 50s. They had Skiffle. Yeah, they had Skiffle. <laughs> Uh, I want to just read real quick what Mark, how Mark Boland described these lyrics. I thought you were going to say how Mark Boland died. Spoiler no. alert. Spoiler <laughs> I'm skipping alert. That. He hit a tree. It's a festival of life song. I relate Metal Guru to all gods around. I believe in a god, but I have no religion. With Metal Guru, it's like someone special. It must be a godhead. I thought how god would be. He'd be all alone without a telephone. I don't answer the phone anymore. I have codes where people ring me at certain times. I am the queen of pudding! <laughs> 
signature challenge has been assessed by the double entendre police. Paul and Mary would love you to make cream horns. And there's nothing fun to say about that whatsoever. A cream horn is very simply a spiral of pastry with some cream in the middle. Cream in the middle. It's very important that you fill the horn right to the bottom so that you enjoy it to the last mouthful. Cream in the middle. Cream in the middle. <laughs> Well, you've tried it just for once, I, I just wanted to say Mark, Mark Bolin. I love Mark Bolin. I love T-Rex. Here is my pick for the... In the, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fame episode. But he is the most annoying hippie <laughs> that you could ever talk about. I love oh, yeah. listening to what he says. It's just, it's, you're just like, oh, just I love gibberish. That quote. I love that quote. I wanted to just let it hang there because it's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, Dave, the only thing I'm going to apologize to you for this episode about is that I put the punk song at number eight instead of number nine, and I broke the tradition. Mm. <laughs> anyway, this is Neil Diamond. Uh, much as glam brought rock and roll back to basics what? after we're, the hippie we're, era. We're done, we're done with talking about me? Fuck. Uh... Punk brought British rock and roll back to basics after the prog rock era. He had tight, compact tunes, with strong melodies, and no wasted space. And there's no better place to hear that than the godfathers of punk pop, the Buzzcocks, whose greatest hits compilation, Singles Going Steady, is usually regarded as one of the great punk albums of all time. Unbelievably great. It's really, really fucking good. Uh, it was also their first album to be released in the U.S. And this is their debut single, Orgasm Addict, which did not chart because it was not allowed on the radio for some reason. I, I thought that this was supposed to be songs that were hits in the U.K. but didn't make it in America because they were too British. The song didn't make it in the U U.S. because it's filthy, and also it's not a pop song at all. Like Andy Texas and the Apple Pies could have released this song and it wouldn't have been a hit in the U.S. Well, I fudged it by saying most of these songs were hits oh, in the UK. Okay. okay. Well, the larger point is that the Buzzcocks are iconic over there in a way that they aren't here. Yeah, okay. and they could be. They're amazing punk bands that yeah. was, oh, yeah. was easy, easy to listen to. That should have been huge here. But when you see a picture of them, you know why. <laughs> they were too British. Yeah. Yeah, balding, well, bad teeth. Lead singer was out at the time, wasn't he? Well, I'll get to that. Oh. Uh, I picked this one because for the last song, I'm going to get to it right now, actually. The last song we talked about the yeah, flirtations a, with called, sexual ambiguity. The segue, Steve. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Sorry, I was too busy smelling your fart to really think too much that about wasn't what was me. going on. Really? Somebody's, so you mean, so me. Boy, oh boy. I, I burped and I did have a, sub, oh. a spicy sub from Santoros. <laughs> oh boy. Anyway, last song was about sexual ambiguity. It seems to light that British fire. The subtext of this song is not a coy flirtation with it. Come to think of nothing about this song is coy. Uh, but the wide ranging equal opportunity partners listed off here were subtle references to Pete Shelley's actual bisexuality which he revealed in 1981 after the Buzzcocks broke up and he released his first solo single, which was a synth-pop song called Homo Sapien, which was explicitly about dudes hooking up with dudes. Uh, this is the one song, apparently, that Pete finds embarrassing later in life, but it's nonetheless regarded as a classic of the era because it brings that droll British wit to the embarrassing subject and also it's hashtag relatable. This is one of only a handful of songs co-written by Buzzcocks co-founders and co-singers, Pete Shelley and Howard DeVoto. Howard didn't stick around for very long. He wasn't DeVoto to the Buzzcocks. He definitely was not. Uh, he left to form the acclaimed post-punk band Magazine, 
after not too long. Pete Shelley then became the full-time lead singer. He was helped out on second guitar by the band's former bassist, Steve Diggle. <laughs> Counterintuitively, Steve Diggle was the only one of the three who had not adopted a stage name. Why would you? Yeah. When your name's that fucking British. You gotta stick with it. Dave, do you want to say anything else about the Buzzcocks? Uh, they're really good. I want to say that they're, that that song is like the precursor to, what was it, like, Longview? No, no. Uh, yeah, Longview by Green Day. Yeah. About, about yeah. jerking off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the Buzzcocks, I, I've loved the Buzzcocks. I remember you and me listening to them when you were building those giant uh, letter blocks <laughs> in my garage. What were you trying to do, trap children? Yeah, something like that. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, for my mom's uh, birthday, uh, we had a double header of concerts. The night before her birthday, I took her to see The Who. The night of her birthday, I took her to see The Buzzcocks. She did not care for The Buzzcocks. And they did not play a good show that night. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying trying to find the punchline. What? What? (laughs) What? (laughs) I forget. Is Mary's recipe looking? Have you stuck to it? Is there anything you've done differently with it? Well, so oh, hang, hang on, well, hang on. I added a little bit of orange juice to it, jelly. Where did you get the orange juice from? The orange. Oh, it's. <laughs> number seven! What the fuck is happening? Dave, you asked before if you needed to watch The Great British Bake Off to appreciate this show, and I'm gonna say now that the answer is yes. Wow. You had to. This is Squeeze with Up the Junction. Uh, Americans generally think of Squeeze as the new wave one-hit wonders who did Tempted. That song did not even make the top 40 in their home country. Their commercial puddings. Yeah. What is that? It's a reverse pudding. Is it maybe a pie? Is it a burger? Oh, it's a cheesecake. They have cheesecake over there. They call it a type of pudding. We have cheesecake here, and we know it as cheesecake, which is a cheesecake. But wouldn't it have to be something that's disgusting here that they don't want to eat? Like no, uh, because we appreciated something like that they also freedom? appreciate. We just appreciate it more. <laughs> a freedom pudding. Yeah. Song freedoms. <laughs> yeah, song. Freedoms. That's for the French pop that uh, that, you're, that we're not going to get into. We change it to freedom. Um. Squeeze's commercial peak in uh, in their home country yeah. came with their second album, Cool for Cats, which spawned a pair of number two signals, singles, the title track, and this one. This is a classic story song that covers a young working class man's life from young love to completely fucking up his life and losing his family all in about three minutes. Part of the reason it's so compact is that there's no chorus to interrupt the narrative. And Steve didn't write it. Correct. It's weird because he wrote everything else. And the title is only mentioned right at the very end of the song, which the band said was inspired by Roxy Music's debut single, Virginia Plain. Uh, If you haven't figured it out from the context of the lyrics that you've clearly listened to by now, Up the Junction is an expression that's roughly equivalent to being Up Shit Creek. Uh, They mention Clapham Common in this song. It's the uh, public park in a working-class area south of of South London where the characters in the song have their first date. Today, it is better known as a cruising spot for gay men. It was also the site of a vicious homophobic murder in 2005 where two angry guys randomly chose someone to beat the shit out of. 
Anyway, let's talk about class differences in Link in England now that we've located this song in a working class area of London. Yeah, here take us away from that last fact from 2005. Here in America, class has barely registered in our political consciousness for a long time, partly because of our cultural mythology about how anyone can strike it rich in America if they just work hard enough and believe in themselves and maybe pay a lot of money for a motivational seminar that reminds them to work hard and believe in themselves, um, even though that in practice that sort of mobility rarely happens anymore. But also, partly because we've systematically destroyed labor unions, which were our main avenue for establishing any sort of class consciousness. But in Britain, class is an everyday hey, Bernie, fact of life. Hey, Bernie, shut up. I'm trying to listen to Squeeze. Class is an Bernie everyday Sanders. fact of life in what? Britain because of their notoriously rigid social structure. Traditionally, whatever you're born into, you die there as well. And in a country that attuned to minute differences in regional accents, your class may as well be considered as immutable an identity characteristic as race, gender, or sexuality. So let's talk about Squeeze now that we got that out of the way. Squeeze, the band singing up the junction. Wait, I was just oh. getting into the politics. I don't want to talk about Squeeze. You got to keep up, man. I move from, from bit to bit with lightning rapidity. So uh, Squeeze was centered around the songwriting partnership of Chris Difford and Glenn Tilbrook. Both played guitar and sang. Difford wrote all the lyrics. Tilbrook wrote all the music. The band also included keyboardist Jules Holland, who later went on to become the host, sorry, the presenter of the popular long-running British music show Later with Jules Holland, starting in 1992. Uh, Holland left Squeeze in 1980, was replaced by Paul Carrick, who sang the lead vocal on Tempted, and then left the band after only one album. Fun facts about what you can see on YouTube. Uh, the official video for Up the Junction was shot in the kitchen of John Lennon's former house, where the video for Imagine was also shot back in 71. It was a cheeky move that fed the British music press's speculation that Difford and Tilbrook could be the new Lennon and McCartney. Also, when the band performed the song on top of the pops, they decided that since it was a lip-syncing show, they should just have a laugh and switch instruments and, and just mime playing things they weren't really that competent at. How cheeky, indeed. This morning at 4.50, I am the queen of pudding! Next stage is roll the dough into a rectangle, fold down the top third, then lift the bottom third. The next step is roll out the dough into a 20 centimetre square. It says repeat the rolling and folding process three times. I am rolling out my dough to 20 centimetres square. Pudding number six! This is Roller's Show by Nick Lowe. And listen, I've watched the British Bake Off show. It's real fun to watch it when you see them make the food. But to hear them, I can't believe I watched that show. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of making me not want to watch it. I, I've always wanted to give it a try, but now I I kind of just want to go to sleep. Good. It's going to have a Pavlovian sleep effect on gonna, you now. Oh, well, tired. yeah, it's very relaxing also, that show. Uh, Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe is a really important figure in the British punk and new wave scene. Doesn't get nearly as much credit as a lot of his peers. He didn't have that many hits. Cruel to be kind is the only song that most people know of his. But his first two albums are all-time classics and you were pretty much required to hold that view if you worked at the All Music Guide. He was the office obsession to end all musical obsessions. 
Nick was the in-house producer at Stiff Records, which was the first British indie label of the punk and new wave era. His solo debut single, So It Goes, was the label's first release. Also on the Rock and Roll High School soundtrack. Hell yes! Uh, Nick also produced the very first punk rock record released in the UK, the single New Rose by the Damned. Fuck yeah! Hell yeah! He also produced their debut album, Damn Damn Damned, the first British punk album ever released because they beat the Sex Pistols to the punch. Uh, there are a lot of tremendously catchy Nick Lowe sh songs, but I chose this one because it has the best story behind it. So, Nick Lowe's first band was Brinsley Schwartz. Someone's gonna die. <laughs> Someone is gonna die. It's I gonna be Dave. fucking know it. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the stories. He's gonna tell the story, and then at the end, he'll find some sister of a bass player that died. Someone's and he'll gonna drop die it. horribly. Okay, Steve, I'm yeah. ready. Uh, okay. Uh, Brinsley Schwartz was uh, part of the London-centered pub rock scene, which was a precursor to punk both in terms of back-to-basics rock and roll, also in playing small local venues, many of which started booking punk acts later on. Brinsley Schwartz broke him in 75. Nick was still under contract to United Artists as the writer in the group. He really wanted to leave. He, as you'll hear on his early records, he loves a good joke. So in an attempt to get dropped, he decided to write a song making fun of their flagship band at the time, the Bay City Rollers. So he adopted a pseudonym called Terry Modern, he wrote a tongue-in-cheek tribute song called Bay City Rollers, We Love You, released it under the band alias Tartan Horde, which is what their fans were called because the Rollers all wore Scottish tartans. Uh, and surely, surely this will be the last straw and I'll be free to pursue my own muse, I assume Nick said to himself. Unfortunately, Nick made two key miscalculations. First, he's an extremely talented and skilled craftsman, and craftsmen often underestimate how good they've accidentally made their shit. Second, when you're English, because of your cultural conditioning, sometimes the worst insults are really just phrased like subtly backhanded compliments. So much to his dismay, Nick found that wryly understated English sarcasm doesn't always play across cultures. And United Artists called to tell him one day that Bay City Rollers We Love You had become a huge hit in Japan, and could he please write and record a follow-up song as well, and maybe an entire Tartan Horde album? So what did Nick do? He again accidentally made the follow-up song even better. It's this one. Uh, to the point where it was later included on the American version of his debut album. It was called Jesus of Cool in the UK, and pure pop for now people over here because America is a Christian nation. Thank you very much. Uh, the backing band on this song is Clover, who later played on Elvis Costello's debut album and also employed a young Huey Lewis as a harmonica player. Uh, sadly, this was not a hit in Japan, so the tribute album was scrapped, depriving the world of this likely crown jewel of rock music. Uh, Nick then proceeded to write a song called Let's Go to the Disco, which sounds absolutely nothing like disco. It's just an old-school Bo Diddley beat rock and roll number. That was the one that finally got him kicked off the label. I like that Bo Diddley beat. I should yeah, do a genre great. about the Bo you Diddley You've been threatening to for a while. Well, I think you call it a follow. threat. It's more of a... Stop it's threatening more of a comeback. Us. I'm sorry, I didn't... Stop I didn't, it, Dave. I didn't want to make you feel unsafe. Uh, I'll give one epilogue about the all-music thing. Here uh, comes, Hunter. When, oh. uh, when this... When this song became popular around the AMG offices, several people went to the local Michigan Warehouse record store in Big Rapids, snapped up all their copies of the Bay City Rollers' greatest hits CD, partly in hopes that it would really confuse the store's managers. 
Oh, I was wrong. It was just a dumb prank. But it really, that really took uh, took it up a notch from your former weird prank of giving feral cat schnapps lace soups. Yeah, there wasn't a lot to do in Big Rabbits. Uh, Nick Lowe's still alive to yeah. his dismay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, he's, he's, he's kind of a cousin that, that like took heroin to death or sure, something. Probably. The only death that happened was he got dropped from his record contract. The record contract died. It's a great song. <laughs> I'm sorry, I totally came in blind today, and and this is Obs. Just so you just made my night. I gotta scan this and see if you talk about the cover or the parody. <laughs> Dad does. Um, so unlike British humans, this song, "Who's Johnny," is about robots. Uh, by Eldridge DeBarge from the movie Short Circuit, a movie not about the British, but the robots. Uh, what can be said about this song that hasn't already been said? How about this song was Elle's first single after kicking the other DeBarges to the curb? It was also his one and only solo hit. Really? Uh, wasn't Rhythm of the Night? And no, That was DeBarge. That's DeBarge. That was DeBarge. So El DeBarge, what about... Uh, Oak Tree, when it comes to dancing, you know that I'm the best. Was that DeBarge as well? That's not a song. No, it totally is. He was on on Nick Rocks like all the time. You just made it up. It's a fucking song, bro. It's called Oak Tree. (laughs) (laughs) It's about dancing. I remember. Don't ever wrote a song about an oak tree and dancing. It's an oak tree. It's an immovable object. That's it's inanimate. Oak tree. Put it to the test. No. <laughs> Dave, I hope you sleep really well tonight. <laughs> Such a good song. <laughs> I mean, it's a hit now. Uh, I'll put that oak tree to a test. We'll do it later. Right. Here, let me finish talking about oh, who's Johnny. Oh, who's Johnny? Uh, this is written by Peter and Ina Wolf, who also wrote Playing With Fire from Youngblood. You may remember that uh, little factoid as it... I don't know if you said that last week, uh, Dave. I think it was Step in the Fire. Or standing, standing in the standing Fire. Standing in the Fire, whatever. Playing the whatever. Play. This, is why, this is why I wrote Playing, because I don't remember if you said this also, uh, that they also wrote Playing With the Boys. Mm, I did not say that, but So that's a good fact. So, who's Johnny... Standing in the Fire, and Playing with the Boys, all written by Peter and Eno Wolf. Uh, this, of course, is from the movie Short Circuit in 1986. Um, it's about a robot who gains sentience from uh, lightning, obviously, as they do, and then finds us. Uh, and then that robot finds Steve Gutenberg to be absolutely charming. That's what that movie's about. He also wants to fuck Ali Sheedy. Did you get into that? No, Ali Sheedy kind of wants to fuck him, too, anyway. Yeah. He's not supposed to because he's supposed to be a nerd. Right, right, right. Uh, it also no, I'm talking about the robot, not Steve Gutenberg. Oh! Yeah. The robot Listen, I can't get Steve okay. Gutenberg out of my mind. Uh, 
It all. Uh, it also uh, uh, short circuit also won't be on TV very often because actor Fisher Stevens dons brown brown face to play an Indian stereotype. I remember being a kid and not finding Fisher Stevens' portrayal of the Indian character problematic in the least. I remember being an adult and finding out that that wasn't actually an Indian yeah. guy yep. being shocked. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, so kudos, I guess. Well, here you convinced Hunter for thirty years. I think it convinced a lot of people. So, so apparently, I, I read an article from Fisher Stevens from taken from the Short Circuit Two time where he doubled down. Um, apparently, the role was originally supposed to be white, um, and it was changed, and he was fired. Uh, Bronson Pinchot was hired instead, still not Indian, uh, but he left to work on Perfect Strangers. And they asked Fisher, could you do an Indian guy? And he was like, okay, so he was rehired. Um, so he, he worked on it really hard with a dialogue coach. He actually traveled to India and lived amongst families of different castes so he could make sure his, his accent wasn't like just like a certain level of class. He, he, he tried to like find a mix between them all. He a class really, jumper. He really, really wanted to do a good job and not have it be a parody. Wow, all that for like being in short circuit. Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't he know. fooled Hunter. <laughs> fooled young Hunter. Um. So, uh, one last fat fun fact is that this song, uh, it was it was written so well and it was so good. After the fact, they decided to give uh, the robot the name Johnny. That wasn't in the script. It came oh, wow. from this this song. No kidding. Uh, so he became Johnny Five. Then why the fuck did they write a song called Who's Johnny? Because they're hit makers. Why did they write Playing with the Boys? <laughs> because it's fun to play with the boys. Yeah. People want to ask know. about who Johnny is. Yeah, nobody knows right, who Johnny all right, is. All right. uh, do you re- did what? Oh, did, go ahead, Dave. Did uh, you're <laughs> sorry? Well, out of it. Oak tree. Uh, no, I looked it up. I couldn't find it, but I will. Um, do you remember the Weird Al cover of this from the album Polka Party? Yeah, here's Johnny. It's yeah. about Ed McMahon. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's so good. That really is. I almost like it better than this song. Almost. Almost. Do you guys remember in Short Circuit, like the ADR voice dubbing is like really, really bad. On the on the robot? No, on he the human lips. On the humans. Oh, on the humans. Yeah, it's like the ADR the movie, but the, like it sucks. How is it on the robot? It's great. Oh, okay. Yeah, because he That's talks. He talks with his eyebrows. <laughs> Remember the butterfly? Yeah. The, um, yeah. the video for this is something too. Uh, so Elder Barge it's is wonderful. on. Wonderful. Elder Barge is on trial. Ali Sheedy is there. She's in short circuit. She, what is the trial about? I don't know. They are trying to figure out who, who Johnny is. is. Well, yeah. So Ali Sheedy is there, as is a cardboard cutout of Steve Gutenberg, who was way too big a star to show up. Uh, He's waving. The set. Um, they also had a mouth ring, so yeah, he could, so could lip sync. Yeah. Uh, so the, the button-up lady lawyer presents a tape of short circuit as evidence, so we get clips of the movie in a completely seamless way. So toward the <laughs> wait, and the, and the VHS, they pull out. She pulls out the VHS, and they they haven't manufactured the VHS yet. So it's just generic. It's a generic white label that just is written short circuit on it. <laughs> it's fine. It's a, it's printed, but it still looks generic. Um, toward the end of the video, we get a cameo from Johnny Five's hand. They couldn't get the whole robot. <laughs> he was also too big a star to be in the video at that time. And uh, he just... Not the barge. That hand just starts setting pranks up. And so everything goes nuts when the pranks go off. 
and the courtroom is dancing and having a good time, and then Elder Barge and Ali Sheedy go off to bone. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. Still don't know who Johnny is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I always love a music video where you involve the, the members of the cast of the movie that you're doing in. It's bonus points, Dave. Hmm? That's what? how you get bonus points. What are you saying? I wasn't listening. I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. Uh... Each baker has been given exactly the same recipe and ingredients and must produce six perfect miniature pork pies. The story no, of pork that's pies about the begins in the early 18th century. Almost 300 years later, the Melton Mowbray's unique pie was awarded protected geographical status, giving the humble pork pie the same kudos as champagne and parma ham. the Who in their early years, the Small Faces were England's preeminent mod band of the 60s. They were so British they never even performed in America. Quick review of who mods were. Sharp dressed men who took speed so they could stay out all night dancing to American R&B records and then ride home on their scooters in the morning. Dave, I still think you need to get in on reviving this subculture because you're already halfway there. I, I'll tell you something. Ever I don't since, know what I wasn't listening. It's you're okay. a mod. You're I a know mod. you were listening. You're a mod. But since Dave gave up caffeine, he needs a new upper, and I think Pocket Rocket's speed would be right up his alley. Like you, you need a school for Hollywood location? I found you 500 locations. Here's a brown school, here's a green school, and here's a brick school, and, and who wants to dance with some Isley Brothers? It sounds like Dave. Yep. Yeah. I can't wait for I Dave do. to start doing speed. I do love the Isley Brothers. The Small Faces were an amazing singles band, especially after they switched up their drug intake and evolved from mod rock to psychedelia. Uh, if you scan the track listing of a Small Faces best of, there's at least ten songs that are not just good, but bloody brilliant. I could have picked any of them, except for Ichiku Park, which was their only American hit, made the top 20 here, is also fantastic. But this one... Call Brimey is it British. Steve Merritt is this great ballsy belter as a lead singer, but here he combines it with a Cockney accent he doesn't normally use, which is not as easy as it seems if you've ever tried to do a wacky voice during karaoke. And you can actually kind of hear him break character during the loudest uh, choruses. This was their second biggest hit of their seven British top tens, peak number two. I think it was a really good song putting because I can see how it would be a hit if it was sung straightforward and you sort of dropped all the wackiness, all the bleeps and bloops and the spring sounds. I think it's crazy that it wasn't more straightforward. These guys must have just hated making money. Well, it's, it worked in Britain okay. Like, if you, when you went psychedelic, you had to do all this fucking whimsical bullshit back then. Yeah, when Platinum in Britain is just like 100,000 albums and Platinum in America is a million albums, you stop singing like a weirdo. And you sing it straightforward. Because this song is as good as Ichiku Park. This is a really good song. Yeah, it's a great song. It's too wacky. He just had the wacky accent, you know. Yeah. Um, this is from their psychedelic concept album, which was called Ogden's Nut Gone Flake. Uh, the album is recorded as a classic. Uh, the title is a play on a brand of British tobacco, so the reference is completely lost on Americans. Uh, the album was originally packaged in a round metal replica tobacco tin, and they later re-released it on a, in a regular cardboard sleeve because apparently the tins were rolling off the shelves in the record stores. <laughs> uh, this whole album is super British. Side 2 is the real concept part, and it, boy is it psychedelic. 
Tony Zarid isn't here to summarize it, so I won't spend much time. But briefly, a boy named Happiness Stan sees a half moon in the sky, goes on an extremely whimsical quest to find the other half, and there's between-song narration by this cockney radio comedian named Stanley Unwin, who even in Britain was known for speaking half-gibberish. So it's really all but unfollowable for Americans. Sort of a uh, sort of related question here. This song, this track here that we're listening to, is labeled the mono version. This, I, this, right. feel, this feels pretty mono, but I've heard mono versions that are actually stereo with different things going on in each ear. Is that mislabeled, or is it very it, well could be, or is that is there mono that's actually stereo? Is mono <laughs> means something other than in mono both ears at the sh- same mono, time? Yeah, mono should mean you hear the same thing in the left and right ear. Okay, if you got okay. I, I listen to a mislabeled track. Yeah, I know what mono and stereo mean, and I do. But I heard that one track that was labeled mono, and I heard it was hearing the voice in one e- ear and the music in the other, and I was like. This isn't mono. So I wondered if there was a thing. Yeah, anyway. That's an excellent question that I don't have the answer to. That's my own personal shit. I shouldn't have brought it up on the podcast, which is all about music and research. Guys, I, I figured this out. Oh, what is it, Dave? Hmm. Let me read you the lyrics. Oak tree, I'll put you to the test. Oak tree, when it comes to dancing, I'm the best. It's not the barge, it's Morris Day. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, so it makes I'm, sense that you're tired and you mixed up names in your head. Well, I'm remembering the video from when I was a kid on Nick Rocks. I probably haven't seen it in 30 years. You're getting all the little dancing black men with mustaches confused. They're both very handsome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit before we move on about uh, the lead singer, Steve Marriott. He uh, quit the Small Faces on New Year's Eve 68 because he was afraid they were getting too pop quickly formed Humble Pie with Peter Frampton. They did not have that same problem. They did not. (laughs) Uh, The rest of the small faces joined up with two ex-members of the Jeff Beck group, rhythm guitarist Ronnie Wood, lead singer Rod Stewart, shortened their name to the faces and kept right on making really, really excellent rock and roll while also getting drunk on stage a lot. And they were all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as one entity in 2012. Every time. I think you've got a very uniform bunch, and I love the idea of olives in the biscuit. I think the flavours are lovely. Okay. They really do work together. Mm. But I think you're three minutes away from perfection. number four! This is Elvis Costello with Oliver's Army, or Olives in Uniform and Three Minutes of Perfection. Uh, I'm old and out of touch, but I guess that most Americans have at least heard of Elvis Costello, even in this day and age, because he's been around for so long. I'm very familiar with Elvis Costello. But yeah, but you're more of a college boy. I have no <laughs> idea how many Americans have actually listened to very much of his music. Have you been in Have you been in, in, in backwoods Alabama? With, they have, everybody, everybody has Elvis Costello mud flaps on the pickup. Yeah, <laughs> everybody. They, they cut like the, the glasses holes. and everything. They, yeah. they cut the holes out of his mouth so they can fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to add he was also in Austin Powers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was right right around his Burt Bacharach phase, which was really, really good. Uh, Elvis has had only two top 40 hits here and one top 10 album, and that was 1979's Armed Forces, 
from which this song is taken. This was his biggest hit in the UK. It peaked at number two, which makes sense because this might be the biggest earworm in his catalog. And he's got a very rich catalog. He's a fantastic pop songwriter. We know. Also, also very versatile, loves to explore a multitude of styles. Uh, in two, two years after this album came out, he did an album of all classic country covers, which was very good. Have you heard it? No. See? So the original title of Armed Forces was going to be Emotional Fascism. Dude, he burned you good. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm justified in explaining this stuff. I spent I spent a hundred years of my life roaming the beach with this with this metal detector looking for a gold coin. I just found the gold coin, idiots. <laughs> Jokes on you, assholes. Uh, so this was going to be called Emotional Fascism. It was going to be called a, it was going to be a concept album. Examining the parallels between terrible human relationships and terrible abuses of political power. Or in other words, basically what you'd write if you were a nerd in your early 20s and had just been through a bad breakup. The concept got abandoned, probably a good thing. Uh, but you can still hear echoes of, of those themes in a lot of the songs. Oliver's Army is pretty much just about straight-up fascism. It was inspired by a trip to Northern Ireland where Elvis saw a bunch of working-class teenage boys walking around in military gear carrying automatic rifles. Uh, and he wrote about how the powers that be never run out of uses for soldiers, and it's the same story the whole world over. The title is a very British reference to the Puritan rebel Oliver Cromwell's new model army, which was the first to make soldiers into full-time professionals and was used to conquer Ireland in 1649. Uh, it's always a little bit difficult to pin down exactly what an Elvis Costello song is about since he tends to write very, very free associatively. Uh, you'll hear in one line here that Elvis uses the expression, the white N-word. And I'm glad you brought this up, Steve, because why does he say one less white N-word is a question that's been bugging me for decades about this song. Is that like how a fag is a cigarette? Like an N-word is a t-shirt or something in the UK? No, I think he's no. talking about Nickelback. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, one less, yeah. less N-word. One less white nickel bag. Oh, I said it. Uh. Uh, now we're going to get banned. Uh, they, they, but they played this song uncensored on British radio for a couple reasons. Um, one, if we use that particular slur in America, we're referring to a white dude who over-identifies with hip-hop. But in the UK, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which uh, is a name with typical British understatement, uh, is filled with terrorism and violence and bloodshed and whatnot, the Troubles, uh, the white N-word was used as a slur against Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland. Uh, you can hear kind of that in the title of Johnny Rotten's autobiography, No Irish, No Blacks, No Dogs. Uh, and two... This is an anti-war, anti-racism, anti-imperialism song. So it's you being used sarcastically for dramatic effect. Uh, and Elvis later wrote... It always in, goes over well. Always. Just like when Patti Smith wrote the song Rock and Roll N-Word. Everybody or, uh, totally got that. Or when Ted Danson tried on blackface. Wasn't he married to Whoopi Goldberg at the time? They were dating. Doesn't okay. matter. Yeah, you know, it, it's not going to go over well. Yeah, yeah. It would stop trying to defend his actions, Steve. Elvis later wrote in the reissue liner notes, Some of the highly charged language may now seem a little naive. It is full of gimmicks and ov almost overpowers some songs with paradoxes and subverted cliches 
piling up into private and secret meanings. I was not quite 24 and thought I knew it all. It kind of reads like one of those terrible social media apology letters that have been going around the last few months. It is also not too far off from a Mark Boland quote. <laughs> That's very, very good. Very accurate. I'm making a ginger spice yuzu drizzle cake. Uh, drizzle is yuzu juice and some demerara sugar. I've never heard of yuzu. Really? What's it like? I think it's a bit of a cross between a lemon and a lime. I think it is yuzu that we're tasting. Mm. Yeah. There's neither lime nor lemon, mm -hmm. so I'm trying to identify what it is. My brain's going, what is that? I also want to say that one of the guys in the Br Great British Bake Off, his name is Paul Hollywood, so I think that's yep. why Hollywood Steve likes to show so much, and Hollywood's his born name. And yep. he's also like a really handsome, charismatic guy with bright blue eyes. He's very, he's got these poses that he stands in. So yeah, it's not an food. ironic nickname? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> that's the difference. And he's also a bit of a ladies' man, Paul Hollywood, from what I've given to understand from the gossip pages. Oh, as he's a, married. As opposed to being he a lady. He was. Mm. He may still be. Anyway, this is XTC, with senses working overtime. I'm completely gobsmacked that one of the greatest pop bands to ever walk the earth had only one top ten hit in their own in their home country, and yeah, this, this is, is it. A severely underrated band. Severely. Well, I can tell you why this isn't a hit in America because this song is weird. It's a weird yeah, song. Yeah, it's got these weird sliding bass lines in the verses. Yeah, it's not a pop song until the chorus. And these guys need to learn to go beyond the catchy chorus. The chorus and verse, they don't match. That's the easy answer for many of these songs. They're just too damn weird. British or not, this should be called weird songs. Yeah, Who right? the hell counts to five in a song? Write this down, XTC. JD's got some pointers for you. Don't make your song so weird, you'll sell a lot of albums, you'll be real rich. Dear God, XTC, get your shit together. <laughs> I see what you did there. Thanks, dude. That one was for you. Thank you. Uh, JD, if you want to hear how good this band is, you should listen to their double CD singles collection, Fossil Fuel, which is one of the greatest, greatest hits albums ever assembled. Weird name, though. Yep, yep. Uh, this one, <laughs> greatest, greatest hits are the best. Those are the best, the best, the best, the best, best of the best, best. of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the best best ofs, really. Uh, this song is from their 1982 double album, English Settlement, whose cover depicts a giant chalk etching, only visible from above, of a white horse carved into a hillside near the village of Uffington in Oxfordshire. Now, most estimates place the carving at around 3,000 years old, possibly done by the prehistoric Celts. The point is, that's how fucking British this whole album is. Their first few albums were clearly new wave pop, but this is where they start to expand their range into a more singular musical vision. Uh, it's usually tabbed as their second best album behind the Todd Rundgren-produced Skylarking from 1986. This is real R.E.M. sounding, and I like R.E.M., so I'm going to wait 10 or 20 years, and I'm going to get into this XTC band. Hey, you're going to kick yourself when you figure out how good it is and how much you've been missing those those and 20 years. Yeah, I, I need some regrets in my life down the road. Yeah, that's a good I point. I can help you make some regrets. <laughs> <laughs> you already have. XTC was led by dueling songwriters Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding, with Andy being the alpha of the two, relatively speaking. Uh, Andy had a nervous breakdown not long after this album, at which point XTC stopped touring 
became a studio-only band. They got even more British after that. They wrote lots of nostalgic songs about pastoral life in the English countryside with the occasional nod to pre-Christian paganism. Uh, as far as I know, there's no genre I could build around the idea of pure pop weakening, though. Yeah, this, I, I find it interesting that you have a nervous breakdown and you become more British. <laughs> it calms you down because yeah. it's all tea time and biscuits and puddings and I mean I'd be calmed down if I became more British after a nervous yeah. breakdown for sure with all that stuff. Yeah, it does seem to be a, a, probably it was doctor prescribed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> become more British. Oh yes, this relaxes me into my identity. Um, senses working overtime is. It's a. It, it, you you kind of get that idea of sensory overload, but it's a generally generally joyous celebration of the wonderment of being alive. I want to call attention to one particular line that describes the world as biscuit shaped. I've called these songs puddings, but biscuit is another British word that means a bunch of different shit, none of which includes what Americans think of as biscuits. Uh, biscuits in Britain are basically crackers and cookies, or as they like to say, savory biscuits and sweet biscuits. I didn't call this genre biscuits because figuring out what counts as a biscuit isn't nearly as baffling as trying to figure out all the permutations of pudding. Also, pudding is a funnier word. I'd also like to point out this song also mentions donkeys, cannons, football, church bells, and lemons and limes, which, as we all know, prevent scurvy. Uh, he also changes up one chorus line where he's trying to tell the difference between turds and treasures, which to me seems less similar to one another than lemons and limes. Not after you've been blocked up for a few days. You guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Anybody notice how Steve's kind of drifting in and out of a British accent? Yeah, because he's written a lot of the slang and he can't help but get into it, and then he's just rolling. It's supposed to be pronounced in the original accent. You know. Also, also, I don't know if you guys know this, but out with Madonna. Also, I've been hanging out with the Queen of Puddings as well. He's you're all, like, he you're like a, a you're like a sophomore college girl who came back from a semester abroad in England. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, did, I did six weeks abroad in England, there and you, go. you can't help but slip into the accent. It's just like when Madonna married Guy Ritchie. Steve, this is 2017. It's okay to talk about mental illness. Steve had a nervous breakdown yesterday. Yeah, become more British. He went to the doctor. Yeah. He said, As just a, a little more British. Just a little more. I mean, it's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of controversy about that view, but, you know, to me, it makes perfect sense. The mental breakdown certainly explains those bumpers. <laughs> <laughs> I want to read some words. STC is from Swindon in Wiltshire, halfway between London and Cardiff, on the way to Bristol. These are all places in Britain. Swindon is also not too far from Uffington, where the chalk horse lives. Other towns in this area include Shrivenham, Balking, Didcot, Little Coxwell, Pusey, Goosey, Badbury Wick, Hannington Wick, Boscot Wick, Cerny Wick, and Broughton Pogs. That was extremely relaxing. I could listen to that don't all day. You, I, you, I don't think he said it? the full name of some of these. I think some of them are on sea. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, or maybe no, those are the, the neighboring towns. Oh. These, these are more kind of in the middle on the way to the sea. Oh, so not Swindon on sea? Mm-hmm. Chrisington Wick by sea on sea. Don't you go want to live in the pastoral English countryside now? Get away from it all. Brickberry stop on the sea. Between the two of you. 
morning, bakers, and welcome to our second day here in Bakewell. You've got five hours to create three puddings. There's three categories. The first is a crumble. Secondly, a pudding that's got bread in, in some shape or form. And thirdly, a suet pudding. You're looking for moisture, texture, and taste. The three key things in any pudding. Three original puddings, three original puddings, three original puddings. So you can't define pudding, can you? The proof is all right there. Uh, this is the Kinks, of course, with uh, Waterloo Sunset. Uh, the Kinks pretty much single-handedly invented the whole song puddings genre. Uh, while all of their British invasion counterparts were touring America, Ray Davies and the boys were cooped up back home, unable to land work permits, which the American Musicians Union refused to issue them. Allegedly, this was because of the Kinks' penchant for fighting each other on stage, fighting with a TV producer who worked for Dick Clark, and screwing over a promoter who tried to screw them first. But anyway, under this unofficial touring ban, the Kinks missed out on all the wild fun of America, which may not have been a terrible thing given the era's fascination with underage groupies. So they got more and more English as the 60s wore on, both in their sound and their lyrical focus. Most everything you might hear in a proper song pudding, the, Kings, the Kinks did first. Riley mocking character sketches and class satires like A Well-Respected Man, Dedicated Follower of Fashion, and Sunny Afternoon, which were some of their last charting hits in the U.S. before the touring band whittled down their audience substantially. You've got the flirtations with androgyny in their well-known 1970 hit Lola, little slice-of-life vignettes about the working class, gentle pastoral-sounding odes to life in the countryside, nostalgia for the local English traditions they'd grown up with in suburban London, and remember that these were the guys who'd started out by sticking needles in their amps to create guitar distortion and pioneered the repeated guitar riff style of songwriting with their early hits. The godfathers of hard rock, basically. They turn into this. And nobody in America has ever heard of them. Nobody in America knows the they're puddings. No, no, they, they're they not as familiar. Yeah, they're not as familiar with the essentially British period of the late 60s. Anyway... This newly Brit-centric style started to take over their music on the album Face to Face from 1966, but it really crystallized over the next three, which I propose should henceforth be known as the Pudding Trilogy. Some with something else by the Kinks. The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society and Arthur or the Decline and Fall of the British Empire. The last two of those records were officially concept albums as well. They all got good reviews and virtually no sales in the US. And as a matter of fact, the last two, despite their massive influence on most of the specifically British rock that followed them, didn't even chart in the UK either. Uh, partly because the band gave up touring altogether. But those are the records that are ground zero for all of this. Uh, this song, Waterloo Sunset, is from Something Else from 1967, deservedly one of their biggest hits, reaching number two in the UK. It sounds on a, like a sigh on a cool breeze at dusk, which is why you'll recall I used it to intro the first episode I did about the ache. Uh, it's about a couple meeting after work for their weekly date, while Ray Davies' narrator watches from a window, not really participating in life, but observing all the urban hustle and bustle from afar, trying to maintain some serenity, which makes sense because he had also had a nervous breakdown about a year earlier. 
Uh, don't take my word for it about how beautiful this song is. Robert Chris Gow, the Dean of American Rock Critics, called this the most beautiful song in the English language. And my former colleague at All Music, Stephen Thomas Earlywine, the Dean of Internet Rock Critics, called this the most beautiful song of the rock and roll era. High praise indeed. Well, J.D. Riznar, the dean of grouping old music and finding genre names for them, calls this song a, a pretty song by the Kinks. That is also correct. I uh, saw a dude with an acoustic guitar playing outside of a coffee shop in a Portland airport a couple weeks ago playing this song. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, it was really nice to walk by and Lovely. We'd like you to make our Which jam I feel that donuts. British people would now, call Mary and Paul are not only looking for consistency in size, but also in yeah, sorry, jam we don't distribution. Want to miss this. I think this is big enough. I can't cope with them any bigger. They're like big beasts, aren't they? Wow, those look absolute whoppers. Gosh, there's a lot of jam in there. Gosh, there's a lot of jam in there. Gosh, there's a lot of jam in there. You almost talked over the dirty jokes, Dave. I see what you did. She said jam. We're listening to the jam. Whoa! And there's also dick references. Like, uh, they're talking about big dicks. And jam is the jizz inside the dicks. <laughs> the jizz joke, Dave. Um, That's, I see JD picked up on it. Sure did. <laughs> you know, you go to Cinnabon and you pour milk over your Cinnabon, you've got pudding. Eh, it probably wouldn't qualify as a British pudding. Mm-hmm. It's got some baked shit and some liquid that don't really normally go together. So, yeah. what about like a trace leches cake? Yeah, they'd probably pudding. call it a pudding. Yeah, these are songs that cannot be defined <laughs> from England. Hey, let's talk about the jam, the band. Uh, I didn't want to end the fun countdown on a melancholy note like Waterloo Sunset, so I'm going with the other band that had the biggest impact on specifically British rock music down through the years. The jam started off as a mod-influenced punk rock band, mod as we've established already being pretty British, and they broadened their sound and their subject matter into more kinks-influenced slice-of-life territory. Uh, I remembered hearing an urban legend that Paul Weller, lead singer and songwriter, cried upon hearing that this song had entered the UK charts at number one. I never found the correct combination of Google search terms that could confirm or deny that. So maybe when Paul hears this podcast, as I'm sure he does, we can get him to cry again, putting it at number one here. Paul, you're finally number one in America. Congratulations. Uh, This is Going Underground. It was released as a non-album single in 1980, first of their four UK number ones. And when it happened, the band was in America, attempting to win over audiences who found them too damn British. Upon hearing they were number one back home, they all looked at each other and said, Sod it, lads, let's bugger off back to London and go lip-sync our number one hit song on top of the pops. Uh, I am positive that is a direct quote. And then two years later, Weller disbanded the jam to form the Sophistapop group The Style Council, so that was pretty much that for the jam trying to conquer America. What were their other uh, number ones? I'm assuming in the city. Nope, Town, nope. town called Malice. Town called Malice. Uh, that's Entertainment. Uh, Beat Surrender was one. And I don't remember if it was That's Entertainment or not. It might be It might be Start. I can't remember. 
the jam was very well loved in their homeland. All 18 of their singles made the top 40. Half of those hit the top 10. They have their own Kinks-esque pudding trilogy of albums, starting with their third, All Mod Cons, then Setting Suns, and Sound Effects. Uh, Paul Weller came back as a solo artist during the Britpop era of the 90s as sort of an elder statesman, was nicknamed the Mod Father. He still cranks out albums every two or three years, most of which are of at least decent quality. Uh, this Going Underground is one of the earliest anti-Thatcher protest songs, although it's more general in its subject matter, and it's more about Paul Weller's bafflement over conservative social priorities. Uh, the line, you'll see kidney machines replaced by rockets and guns, still pretty much sums up all the budgetary priorities on both sides of the English-speaking Atlantic. The Tories are still trying to cut the National Health Service as much as possible to pay for tax cuts for the wealthy. And of course, we all know what a shit show the American health care system still is, even after the biggest reform in a generation. Bernie, is that you again? <laughs> Do you, are you back? JD, are you satisfied with the American health care system? No, Steve, you know that I'm a flaming... Are you? Are you? I am, because I have a great yeah. insurance, man. We got, we got it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be cheaper if everybody's on insurance, though. The same yep. insurance, single payer. I agree. You just don't have to talk about it when you're talking about British music. Every time, Bernie Sanders. He, wrote, he literally wrote the line in the song. I know. <laughs> and also, he was a leftist. He teamed up with several other musicians, including Billy Bragg in 1985, to form a left-leaning collective called The Red Wedge, which organized several concert tours in support of the Labour Party during the lead-up to the 1987 elections, which were won by Thatcher's conservatives again, so the Red Wedge sort of drifted into oblivion. But it had a good name, is the point. Oh, is that you, Nigel Puddington? Are you talking about leftist British politics, Nigel Puddington? Well, yes, I am. You know what's really interesting about this entire genre? Um, they Hello, sing... Steve. With British accents, like you listen to the Rolling Stones, they sound like an English band, and all these guys, you can hear that they're British when they sing it. Yeah, and the Rolling Stones are trying to sound more like you know a Black Delta blues man from Mississippi, circa yeah, 1940. Yeah, when Ozzy sang "Generals Gathering in Their Masses," it wasn't "Generals Gathering in the Masses." <laughs> it was "Generals Gathering in, in Their, their masses. masses." He did a good job. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me sum up the show real quick. Class, androgyny, irony, class, lack of scurvy, fuck Margaret Thatcher. Any questions? I mean, I I would request those themed songs from Jojo Gerard at Sunny FM in the late 80s, so I don't understand why every American would. Did Jojo ever play him? No, I was being funny. Oh. <laughs> I was saying, hey, Jojo, no. play something about androgyny. Play something about the JD British was class saying, system. Play Weird Al. Yeah, I was saying play Weird Al. Play, I, I play do, I'm Too Sexy. I do remember Jojo Gerard playing a Nick Lowe song called Stingstang every morning. <laughs> I'm sure he did. That would be good. That's one of my genres I want to do is Zucor. Songs like that that would play on morning zoo shows. Oh, that'd be good. Um, like Bang on a Drum All Day by Todd Rundgren. Yeah, he played that. One. Jojo Gerard played that one a lot, too. Volume 4. All right. <laughs> I looked down that list of concerns about this genre and subject matter, and I, it strikes me that had I been born in Britain, I may have been considered somewhat more normal. And there's some bespeckled long hair and sandals and a, and a cricket shirt in Boggity Wick, Never, Nevershire, thinking the same thing. 
about America. It's the same the world over, you know. And his name is Nigel Puddington, and he's going to run for office and be a leftist politician on the Puddington ticket. Oh, I very much hope so. Or didn't make the list. I found out one that didn't make the list. I did some research. I didn't think I'd be able to find anything, but it wasn't that hard. It took me about 20 seconds. Googled British Top 100 Songs from 1977, the year of my birth. And sitting right there at number 20 was a song that went as high as three on the UK charts, on the weekly charts, called Rockin' All Over the World by Status Quo. It's a Seeger-style boogie-woogie, but with heavy British accents. That sounds good. Yeah. It's the accents again. You'd like it. The song did chart all over the world except the U.S. These guys wanted badly to be an American band. Like but Grand o- Funk Railroad. Yeah. Made but, it sound really good. But only their first song, a standard British invasion hit called Pictures of Matchstick Men, went to number 12 in the U.S. And their third single, uh, single Ice in the Sun, hit number 70. And that's it. So between 1968 and 2010, Status Quo had around 70 charting singles in the U.K., dozens of them top tens. Not a peep here. That's some good research and status quo. I didn't have to do any research because I already had an answer. Uh, Steve, I I really do think you could have broken this down to like six or seven different shows. The British Invasion, uh, Glam, Punk, Punk, yeah. I got like 80. I could do my own punk episode on this. Um, I would, I have to say. Are you suggesting I should do seven volumes of this? Well, I think you already fucked it up because you you put, you brought the British invasion with with T-Rex and so now it's all fucked up. Now you're, now you're, you're You're totally fucked now. You totally watered it down, Steve. Jam. The jam is mixed with the kinks. It's the greatest hits. You got the greatest hits. Yeah, it's a really. You could have had your own podcast about a star in Britain. But listen, if you would have done a better job and and split this up. (laughs) a little bit more uh i really think the the even more than than t-rex would have been slayed yeah and in particular in that their songs were done by a a very average american band and quiet riot (laughs) (laughs) and became number one like number one hits Mm -hmm. but slade's shit could never come to the u.s because they were so that was that was my whole show the glam undercovers your whole show. My whole show. Your whole show. Uh, next time, Dave. Hey, I speaking of whole yet. shows. I haven't gone yet. Oh, do you have oh, one? Do you have one? Yeah, you're saying punk. Generation X would have been a perfect fit for this. Really? They were an incredible band, and Billy Idol didn't have fame in the United States until they went solo. Hmm. And if you haven't listened to Generation X's uh, uh, music, it's, I'd be happy to make you a mixtape. I really only know the Your Generation song by them. Oh, God, there's so many. Speaking of your, your shows, Dave, what are you doing next? I got a couple ideas, and I'm zeroing in on them, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I think I might be doing Talkternative. Okay, well, let's let that hang and let people figure that one out. Um, all right, well, listen, check out the great stuff we have on the Captain's blog over at YachtRack.com. Uh, lots of great stuff being written, and you know, I, I took the initiative to write reviews of every Michael McDonald solo album ever, and I'm doing them in reverse so go on. I've done two. So go on there now and read so my. He's getting better. Yeah, right, right. He's slowly. I, I'm doing it because I, w- I want to imagine I'm living in a world where Michael McDonald slowly regains relevance. Um, sort of a Benjamin Buttons kind of. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, I reviewed his latest album, Wide Open, and his 2008 album of mostly soul covers called Soul Speak. Um, hey, and while you're on yawrock.com, go to the merch booth. We got buttons and a premium t-shirt and a stylish record tote. Holds 20 records. 
And we sell them all at Crazy Cocos. Get them today. 0% off. Free shipping. Always free shipping. Just, we just charge more. That's the Yacht Rock promise. <laughs> <laughs> no, JD, you're not supposed to read that part. Oh. Sorry. You're driving me crazy, JD! You can't tell them we're mocking them off. <laughs> you can't tell the customers how we're ripping them off. You're driving me crazy. Don't tell them we're trying to make a profit. <laughs> Jeez. As your stuffy British accountant, I must register a protest against this policy. It's a I'm... profit to be made, not HUD. <laughs> I want to sell you a t-shirt so bad that I keep your emails in a list and market to you when we have something new to sell. And I also know exactly how you spend on the internet because I go into the metadata. <laughs> I'm creepy. <laughs> creepy Coco. Selling to you. Wait, now, Okay, now here's, here's my concern. He's referring to himself as Coco. You uh, in the Patreon? I think he was referring to a, char a little, character yeah, as little, Koku that he mm, was giving a voice to. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. And but yes, in in the Patreon. In the thing. Patreon, he's got a photo of him of me, and he calls himself Koku. Yeah. It's, it's very confusing. And when he, I see I, it. I'm pretty sure he also has his own JD. He does. Yeah, but there's he two of them. It. Oh, you mean on the Twitter? No, on the the the, uh, the, the Slack channel. Yeah. Oh the, yeah yeah for the yeah. the Patreons. Oh yeah yeah when I sign up. Join for our Slack channel. <laughs> And see what the fuck I'm talking about. Uh, all right, credits. Find this week's Yacht Rock playlist. He, did, he didn't. He didn't puddings. explain it. Didn't shed any light on it. What it's a mystery? <laughs> Song puddings playlist. Oh, okay. Well, I'll explain it. I'll, I'll explain it. <laughs> I signed up for that Patreon for our fan Patreon, mm -hmm. and I signed up. I thought like I could do something that all of us could use, and so I signed up generally as Coco. With the our Beyond Yacht Rocket Gmail address, and then I, I and then I I found out on my phone how I could join with my oh, Slack yeah, account. Yeah, you can have multiple. Yeah, multiple, you can have multiple yeah. channels. Yeah. So because I started with that Coco account on my desktop, that's the only way I can get invites to invite people. Got it. Because Coco is the moderator. So otherwise, when I'm a, otherwise you're just sitting at home alone on a Saturday. When I'm slacking on my desktop on my laptop. Then I'm, I have that Coco account, and on my phone I have JD Rizner. So you you join a Patreon, you get on Slack, you can talk to us, except yeah. for Steve, because he's a, he's a, what do you call it, the guy who doesn't he's a use pudding. technology? He's a pudding. What do you call a guy? Luddite. I'm Luddite. Luddite. He's a Luddite. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, get, I'll get on eventually. Um, so find this week's Yacht Rock playlist by following JD Rizner on Spotify. Go to YachtRock.com for a very useful experience. Send questions via Twitter at Yacht Rock. Like Yacht Rock. <laughs> Follow Beyond Yacht Rock on Instagram. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Themes by Rob Crow and Mark Rivers. Thanks to producer Matt Brousseau. Brousseau! That guy knows the difference between mono and stereo out there. <laughs> yeah. We need somebody like that. I was trying to, I, I shouted that. I wanted to see my wave spike on the uh, monitor. Uh, thanks to the entire Feral Audio family, um, except for you know who I'm talking about. Mm hmm. Nigel Puddington. They just brought him on as an intern, and he doesn't clean up after himself. Check out other Feral Audio podcasts at feralaudio.com. Feral Audio.